Hello, and welcome to this Forum for Philosophy conversation about food. With thanks to Dr. Amar Aziz, this event is co-sponsored by Arab. Food. Our relationship with food is rich and complex. Shopping for it, preparing it, sharing it, and eating it can link us with our past, with home, and with other people. Food can be connected to care and hospitality, but it can also be a source of guilt and shame. Recipes can be cultural artifacts, while food access and consumption is also bound up with various forms of socioeconomic inequality. Here, we're going to be exploring aspects of the history, philosophy, and politics of food. My name is Sarah Fine. I'm a fellow at the Forum for Philosophy, and I teach philosophy at the University of Cambridge. I'm really thrilled to welcome our splendid speakers. C.T. Nguyen is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Utah. In a previous life, he was a food writer for the Los Angeles Times. As he writes on his website, He's interested in the ways that our social structures and technologies shape how we think and what we value. He's the author of Games, Agency as Art, which was published with Oxford University Press in 2020. Or Rosenbaum is a senior lecturer and director of the Center for Modern History at the Department of International Politics at City, University of London. She's the founder of the Migrant Supper Club, which shares migration histories through food. She trained as a pastry chef at the Cordon Bleu Paris, and she's currently working on a book, Air and Love, which is under contract with Picador, and that's about the history of migrants, families, and their food. Ahmed Zeno is a chef with the social enterprise My Grateful, where he teaches Lebanese cuisine in cookery classes. And previously, he was a senior data analyst and worked as a volunteer paramedic and team leader for the Red Cross in Lebanon. So thank you all very much indeed for joining us. And a very hearty welcome as well to our audience. We're very keen to receive your questions as we're speaking. Those who are listening on Zoom can type their questions in the Q&A box. And we'll also be looking out for questions from our Facebook Live audience. And of course, as ever, you can tweet along with us on the hashtag LSE Forum. So now I'm going to turn to our panel and I'm going to ask each of our panel members to fill us in on their professional relationship with food. So can I start with you, T? Could you tell us about your professional relationship with food? Hello, hello. Uh, thanks. Hi. Great to be here. Um, so during graduate school, uh, I got a job as a food critic for the LA Times. Uh, honestly, I got the job because I was exhausted by graduate school and I was drunk posting on an old bulletin board called Chowhound. Uh, I can tell you, I, I had some theory that like uh, Southern chicken and waffles, which was like soft waffles and like gravy and sweet maple syrup, like had the same... Uh, culinary resonance as 
like uh, pecking duck. Like you have that soft bun and that plum sauce and the fried thing. And I went on some long rant about Joseph Campbell's like eternal recurrences of food and then apparently got hired. I had to give that up to say my academic career, which is probably a terrible decision. Um, these days I've actually been doing a lot of aesthetics and philosophy of art. And one of the things that I've gotten really interested in, and I was interested in this back in the day when I was a food critic too, which is like how people's theory of what makes food good pays it changes like what they pay attention to. So I remember back when I was a food critic in the LA Times, like, so I was working this beat of like cheap ethnic eats or whatever you want to call it now. Um, and a lot of it was like teaching people in LA what the right thing to pay attention to. Cause a lot of them felt like, like it was not just ambiance and service, but like one of the interesting things to me is the kind of like standard Frenchy English high Euro aesthetic tends to be very focused on flavor and aroma. And I have to say things like, okay, at this Chinese noodle place, the most important thing is actually the texture. Like the thing they care the most about is how like the noodle slips down your throat, the feel in your throat or all these things. Like what they, what this place cares the most about is how it feels here. And this gets, I think it's like, and, and I've done some like Euro style, like wine training, and it's so laser focused on the flavors and aromas in the mouth. And I, I got really interested in why this other stuff uh, gets excluded, especially like um, I was spending a lot of time learning. In, in when I was in Los Angeles, I got to, I, I found some like weird shopping malls with these like really highly trained Chinese tea masters. And I kind of went back and got a lot of training on brewing. And I remember a thing I heard in multiple shops, which was like, what they had to do in response to typical American customers. So American customers tend to be very focused on taste and aroma. And one of my team masters said something like, look, uh, for us, like taste is important, but it's the least important thing. Aroma is more important. Feel in the mouth and throat is more important. The way it feels in your belly and warms your belly is more important. And the kind of like energy effect, which I take to be drug effect, is like most important of all. And so a lot of what I'm thinking about professionally is trying to figure out like where we, where it came from the fact that like Euro high culture is so laser focused on just a few elements of taste and texture to the exclude, I mean, taste and flavor to the exclusion of other elements like body feel. Um, and I also, uh, you mentioned that I work on game stuff and I'm really interested in the way that these artifacts, a lot of theory about games is really interesting in how they're a fiction. And I'm really interested in how they're like this social thing that creates these relationships. And I see a lot of the same things, a lot of food. Like there are a lot of, I want to call them social food rituals. This is stuff I've been writing about lately that where the most interesting thing to me is not the flavor of the texture, but the way the physicality of the artifact creates a certain social interaction. I'm thinking about like the Vietnamese hot pots I grew up in or like fondue or raclette machines or these things where it makes everyone kind of crowd around this like small artifact and jostle. And I mean, it's always fun. And I'm really interested in the way in which the physicality of the artifact kind of like drives people into a kind of social relationship and how a lot of this stuff gets excluded from like high culinary culture. Brilliant. Thank you so much. That's really fascinating. So did you find that your philosophical training helped you as a food writer and the other way around as well? Do you find that your experience as a food writer has helped with your philosophy? Uh, I, it's the other way around. My experience as a philosophy graduate student barely helped with the food writing. 
uh, the food writing, like it, philosophy trains you to be extremely abstract and ex looking for generalities. And food writing is about like the dense particulars and the physical savor. But I found uh, actually the, the other direction is when I was writing this book on games, I found that a lot, since a lot of it's about these weird indie role-playing games where you have to like invent language and silence or stuff. Like I had to, people had never played these things. I had to describe them in the book. And that's the place where I was like, oh, this, I know how to do this. This is my old food writing muscles. I know how to like give people a sense of like this weird particular aesthetic, like textured, janky, odd thing that's hard to describe in abstraction. So Brilliant. Thank you. Or could I bring you in here to talk about your professional relationship with food? Right. So my family's always been very passionate about food. So that's something that I got from my grandmothers and my mum, each in their own way. So not just cooking, but actually eating, trying on new things and experimenting. Um, and then at a certain point, I just felt I need to go my own way and got into uh, French pastry making uh, before it got trendy. So that was <laughs> almost 20 years ago. Um, and I decided to move to Paris and um, take a course at the Cordon Bleu. Uh, so that was my kind of hands-on experience in the kitchen where I actually discovered that I'm more of an intellectual. So then I decided to move on and become an academic or a historian mostly. And uh, kind of my culinary passion remained alive in the background. Um, I've also written for a culinary magazine in Tel Aviv, uh, kind of reporting about new uh, trends in the world. So trying to keep up with what was going on uh, in the meantime in restaurants and in people's mouths, really. Um, and then uh, with time, I tried to find a way to reconcile my academic research, which looks at kind of the history of international thought or how people thought about uh, world politics in the 20th century, um, to reconcile that with my passion for cooking um, and uh, with my own personal story of a person who lived really in five or six different countries, who keeps on moving relentlessly and um, migration is, I suppose, part of my, my adult identity. So I grew up in Tel Aviv until I was about uh, 19, but then I just kept on moving. Uh, so I decided to found in London the Migrant Supper Club, which was an opportunity to cook for people, uh, which is something that I adore, uh, and also to feed them with recipes that tell the story of migrants that I feel in the contemporary political climate in London is something that we all need. Um, and uh, I know that uh, obviously people have personal experience of migrants, they read about them in the news, but I think that eating uh, the food of, um, let's say, migrants from Samarkand or tracing their story of migration through the route that they did and the food along the way um, is something that doesn't really happen in normal restaurants. Uh, so that was an opportunity to really connect with people and to share stories and also to, to think about ideas beyond the abstract. Uh, so to try to link, uh, I think as um, we've just heard, to try to link the abstract ideas about politics and migration and history to something really concrete that is sensual and that leaves a very um, kind of strong memory uh, in, in our 
um, more sort of experience. So uh, basically that was the beginning. And then slowly food kind of got everywhere. So I've started working on a project on how food transformed imperial history, uh, how this quest for food where people thought that they didn't have enough led them to conquer other places. Uh, the most famous story is obviously the United States, and we've just had Thanksgiving the other day, which is you know, the major settler colonial holiday. Um, but it happened also in other contexts. And, and my research now tries to sort of uh, tell these stories about how scarcity and hang hunger can make us do really um, uh, uh, thing and cause you know, extraordinary violence in the past. Thank you so much. And this seems like the perfect moment to bring in Ahmed because Ahmed works as a chef for Migratefall, which also talks about migration stories. Ahmed, could you say more about your professional relationship with food? Uh, thank you. Good evening, Sarah. Good evening, thank C, you. or dear audience and followers who are on Zoom and on social media. Uh, my main uh, major is actually a senior data analyst, and it's not related to food at all. But what brought me to food was the idea that my mom passed away when I was 17 years old. So I found myself in a place where I was forced to learn how to cook in order to eat what I like to cook. And what even uh, triggered that more is or was during my uh, duty with the uh, Lebanese Red Cross, all my colleagues were also students and, and uh, young, uh, young people or young students who couldn't afford to have takeaways and deliver always. So they say, come on guys, I'll, I'll cook for you. And step by step, I found myself having the passion to cook. Uh, when I moved to the UK, I was part of an organization called Local Welcome where I used to test and uh, trial their recipes. And Local Welcome is actually a uh, social enterprise that used to deal with refugees and asylum seekers. Uh, until one day I decided to do a Lebanese charity dinner where I sold around 60 tickets and I did a massive event and it was extremely successful. And at that time I cooked with the help of my friend. So I brought like five or six of my friends. I said, come on guys, give me a hand in cooking and making this event. And it was extremely successful where we managed to cook 16 dishes and everyone loved this event. So one of my friends told me like, since you like to cook so much and have passion in cooking, why you don't join this organization that's called My Grateful? So I sent a text, uh, in, uh, an email to Jess Thompson and she replied, I went to My Grateful and to be honest, I found a family with My Grateful. And step by step, My Grateful were able to sculpt my, uh, my knowledge from being an amateur in cooking to become a professional chef. And with time, I realized that during delivering a cookery class, I can actually forget all about my pain. Because since my injury, I have been 24-7. So I found that cookery classes is actually more as a therapy for me to help me to overcome my pain. And in addition to that, while delivering a cookery class uh, and a status of being an asylum seeker, during these couple of hours from delivering the class, 
you feel yourself a part of the society, you feel yourself contributing in something within the society, although it's very small, but you're doing something. You are joining your culture, your food, your sense of uh, aroma with others. And, and to be honest, I never had this feeling in my entire life. So it was, uh, to be honest, a fascinating experience. And I really hope keep on growing it more and more. Thank you so much, Ahmed. I've been to uh, your cookery classes with My Grateful and they were fantastic. Could you tell us a little more about what My Grateful is and what My Grateful does for those who don't know? Uh, My Grateful is a social enterprise that was founded by Jess Thompson. Uh, The role of My Grateful is to help asylum seekers and uh, refugees integrate into the society by helping them to teach their home cuisine, whether on Zoom or in uh, live classes. Uh, In Migrateful, we have more than 60 chefs uh, from around 40 different countries. We started in London and then we moved to Bristol and now we're working in Kent and we are expanding. And recently we have, we are, we have been doing, I think more than 2,500 cookery classes. Uh, and during uh, the lockdown, we were able to have cookery classes over Zoom where we've reached almost uh, more than maybe 20 or 30 different countries. Well, in my classes on Zoom, sometimes is to have people from seven or eight different countries at the same time, where we were able to expand worldwide and to deliver our message worldwide. And hopefully someday we will see my grateful in other countries. Fantastic. Thank you. I'm just going to remind our audience at this point that we welcome your questions in the Q&A box on Zoom and via Facebook. And next, I'm going to just carry on with this conversation, Ahmed. Um, I wanted to ask you all, what's special about food? And you've touched on this a little bit, but could you expand for us on why food offers something distinctive, how it connects us with home and so on? Um, In our culture, when you share food with someone, means you're sharing life. When you deliver someone food and you teach him how to make your cuisine, you'll be teaching him your own recipes, your own touch. And I believe when someone try your food, he will feel the passion that you have for your own country. He will feel what you are feeling since you are far away from your home. Some recipes always remind us with our mom, our grandma, remind us with certain places in our home. So when you cannot go back to your home, food is actually taking us there. And it's helping us to take others with us to that place. They will be, they are able to feel what we are feeling at that precise moment. Sometimes when they have the aroma of combining parsley and coriander together, this aroma triggers me and triggers special memories. And when I have these memories, um, I, I share it with my uh, students. Like, guys, this aroma, every time I smell it, it takes me when my grandma used to cook a special dish or in the morning of every Sunday when my dad used to cook a special dish. So aroma is actually triggering uh, memories in a good way and helping us to go into our past and into our memories and into our countries 
but in a good way, not in a way to be depressed and to feel ourselves being attached from our future or to be attached from our past. So food is actually being a bridge between our past and our future and our present. That's great. And I attended your cookery classes via Zoom and it was really, really fascinating for me, particularly in the first lockdown down because there we were all of us in our own spaces and our own kitchens separate you know in in apart geographically and yet because we were cooking the same dish we were smelling the same aromas we were tasting the same food and so we could connect in that very special way even at a distance exactly uh, although everyone was in different places but all of us were on the same platform. All of us were at the same level, joining the same food, having almost the same aroma, which is taking us into the Middle East, taking us into Lebanon, taking us into the history of the Lebanese food. And that's the beauty about this. So my grateful is actually making a bridge between different cultures, between different people, connecting the past with the present and the future. Thank you. Or tell us what for you is special about food? Well, I suppose for me, um, I mean, I really understand what Ahmed is talking about when he says that food reminds him of the way that his family used to cook. I mean, for me, it's the same. Um, I think that my my family uh, has a kind of a collection of recipes that really make up our identity and we continue to cook them wherever we go. Um, so that's something that migrants can really take along, right? Because recipes don't really, are not heavy. You just memorize them. And if you find the right ingredients, you can go on and uh, reproduce this kind of sense of home anywhere you go. So that's something that um, really talks to me. But at the same time, I suppose that food has been an opportunity for me to feel at home in new places where I um, I decided to live um, by growing it. So uh, when I moved to, to Italy uh, with my parents, we lived in the countryside and we had a little vegetable garden. Um, and by growing our own food, we kind of found a way to feel at home there, uh, to connect with the neighbors, to um, kind of share tips and learn how to uh, make olive oil, how to make wine. So the local traditions that you learn as a migrant are also um, really mind-opening. So it's a kind of a duality. You carry your own past with you, and at the same time, you become somebody else. You you manage to um, kind of transcend your limits. Uh, I never thought as a child that, you know, winemaking could be part of my family's heritage uh, in Tel Aviv, the obviously few opportunities. But once we started to do it, we discovered that actually my great-grandfather, who lived in Samarkand, um, also had his own um, kind of grapes and his vineyard and was known for the wine that you used to make. So you kind of managed to realize that some things are um, part of you without even knowing it. And food is a wonderful way to, to discover it. So all these secret continuities in my family were really important. Um, and I suppose that uh, kind of projected uh, into my work as well, because it just showed me the um, 
but food is everywhere in the economy, in politics, in personal experience. It's just impossible to ignore as a historian. And I just realized I need to embrace it um, and to um, and to write to understand what it means uh, to think about food uh, historically in all these different ways. Great. T, over to you. What's special about food in your view? I mean, this is going to sound really simplistic, but the, the, the most special thing about food is that mostly it's the art form where we still mostly make it for ourselves, our family, to our own tastes. Like, um, one, okay, one of the saddest things I've read in any bit of literature is actually in Kurt Vonnegut's book, Bluebeard, which is a story about modern art. And there's this moment where Vonnegut just says like, so <clears throat> sometimes at a wedding, your uncle Peter might like get on, like get drunk, get happy. He's an accountant. And one day he might just get up at the wedding table on the table, at the wedding celebration on a table and just like dance his heart out. And you've never seen it before. And back in the day, back in the day when we lived in like small communities of like a hundred people without uh, mass reproduced um, arts, he would have been like one of the two or three great dancers in our family unit. And we'd have treasured him for that. But what do we do now? We say, uh, get off the table, you're drunk. It's time to go home before you embarrass yourself, right? And I feel like more and more, the, 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 the world we have is one that identifies the few people that have the talent who get to make the movies or do the writing. And then everyone else just reads like, the, we walk around and like, everyone's read the same like five articles. It's just a few people that get to be creative. And yet food is the one spot where for most of us, although I think this is getting undermine more and more we get to like make it ourselves in relation to what we see and our own tastes and our family um and we get to like get involved in the process so this is so i feel like a terrible person because the the other two guests here are doing like incredibly important work about migration community and i'm like some asshole talking about random art theory uh but like um so the thing I've been obsessed with lately is the degree to which our art culture has been obsessed with the product of an artistic process and not the process of getting engaged in it, of making it. Um, so one way this, there's this category I've become really interested in called process arts, which are arts that like get you to do something where the doing itself is really like, is really the richer important thing. Like I think games are a kind of process art, but I, I started thinking, I was reading a lot of cookbook reviews because I have a lot of cookbooks and I'm obsessive about them. And I, I realized that almost all the cookbook reviews obsess about how the dish tastes when it comes out, but almost none of them review the process of cooking, whether it's like enjoyable or rich or engaged or fun or shitty. Um, and I have all these like fancy restaurant cookbooks that are really well reviewed because things come out right, but they're like incredibly annoying and flexible to cook from. And like partially because they've taken like a dish that was made for a kitchen with like 15 chefs and then boiled it down to a home cook. And I realized when I cook, I spend two hours cooking and then we eat for like 20 minutes. Like whether the cooking process is interesting or engaging or horrible is actually the most important thing. And I think like there's, I've just become really obsessed lately with the thought that, that there's a kind of industrialization, standardization of food that's cutting out a lot of what we care about. Um, and here, I do you know the food writer, John Thorne? Does anyone know John Thorne? 
he's he's this incredible food writer to the he he's this really sensitive lovely food writer um who's very philosophical for the philosophers in the audience i wrote him an email once where i was like your writing really reminds me of gaston bachelard's phenomenology of space and he said that was my main inspiration so so um he has these two moments that i think about constantly so one moment he says it's in his incredible essay rice and beans itinerary of a dish that tracks how rice and beans changes is it hops islands and like where similar ingredients are around and some aren't. And he says, he says this, because a recipe is a dead thing, a writing down of how a creative cook made something once. Uh, a dish is a live thing, an idea of balance in a creative cook's head that gets made anew every time in response to changing ingredients. And I feel like something, like there's this thing that's amazing that we do where we have this, sense of balance and we like we taste the pineapple and we're like oh it, it, this isn't like i need a little more sour a little more sugar and like we play with this sense of possibility uh and i think like this is there's this movement to the this kind of like stiffened recipe culture where we tr we try to make it exactly right each time i remember as a child like my, I tried to get my mom, to, who's an amazing cook, to teach me her like Vietnamese hot and sour catfish soup. And she gave me, she didn't give me a recipe. She described like, well, you do this, unless the fish is like this, then you do that. Then you have to add the pineapple, but you have to taste it. So if it's like this, you have to do that. And it was just this like insane flow chart. And I, at the time I was like, mom, this is not real. Give me something real. Give me a recipe. And now I think, oh my God, I was so stupid. Like that was the real thing. And I was trying to like kill it. One more thing before I stop. So this is John Thorne's other thing. John Thorne thinks that what we've done is a lot of us as home cooks, not everyone, but a lot of us have uh, internalized the production consumer model of restaurants into our cooking. And what he means by this is what we've done is we have a dinner party and we put the guests out in the other room and then we go and cook away from them. Like we exclude them from the process. And then we try to turn out these perfect things that emerge like in a restaurant and he thinks like you know what another way to do things is you can invite people in the kitchen and you can get drunk with them and you can cook with them and you can confer about the taste and you cook together and the product probably won't be as good but instead you've created this like social familial feel and instead i feel like i mean i guess this is more the special thing to me about food is this live cooperative self like self-tailoring thing that can happen and I also feel it like slowly getting killed at the edges right now. Wow, that's really interesting. I knew I would mention Nigella Lawson and I'm going to do it now <laughs> because you, you've sort of mentioned the cookbooks that you get that are by sort of restaurant style chefs, but there's this other kind of cookbook, which is by home cooks. And it's all about catering towards, you know, people who are in their homes, who might be in a rush, who maybe don't have a leak in the fridge, but they've got a shallot instead and really accommodate those sorts of changes and the fact that it's a social thing. So do you draw that kind of distinction? And do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it's so, I think about the the cookbooks that leave space. For, so some cookbooks, it's really clear to me, even when they're recipes of clear techniques, like there's an elegance to them. So I think a lot about the Marcella Hazan's, you know, classics of Italian cooking. She's this dish where like, it's um, potatoes and green beans and spaghetti with pesto. And like you cook, 
the whole thing is you put the green bean, the potato in the water, and then you put the pasta in the water and you wait a few minutes and you put the green bean in the water and like everything cooks in just the right time. So it just, it's like, it's elegant, right? But I, I think some, I'm seeing more of the more of these cookbooks that are, I think they feel this and they often refuse to give quantities. And I think that's, that's important, right? Like having a quantity puts you in the mind of like, well, I have to get exactly this. And the other thing it puts you in the mind of like, well, there could be a range, like what's the right adjustment? So I think, um, I think Nigel Slater has a lot of great cookbooks that are like, no, put, his, his amounts are like a healthy pat of butter or cook it till it smells nice, which I think are really important signals. Um, I learned a lot to cook from, uh, a lot of my European cooking came from this, learning to cook came from this marvelous old book, Jacques and Julia Cook at Home, which is Jacques Pepin and Julia Child. It was from their PBS series. And the fun thing about the book is instead of giving you this rigidity, for every recipe, it gives you, each of them gives their own recipe and their sidebars where they shit on the other person's recipe and are like, no, you know, like Julia tells this is why you would never do it this way. And I think that gives you a sense of like the space available for your own creativity in a way a lot of fancy restaurant cookbooks have this like stern voice of like, no, if you do not do it this way, it is not perfect and it'll be bad and your friends will think you're a failure, which is crap. Great. I, I'm going to ask Ahmed a question in a second, but before I do, I just wanted to come back to your point about how one of the things that's special about food is that it's the art form that we do ourselves, um, we engage in ourselves in our own homes and so on. Is that just contingent? Does it just so happen to be the case that food is one of those things that we do? Or is there something distinctive about food that, you know, means that we do it ourselves very often? The pessimistic side of me thinks that it just has to do with what technologies allow for mass mechanical reproduction. And once we get uh, 3D printers that print out food, we'll just all print out, uh, you know, Amazon Prime's recipe for fun. It's all gone. <laughs> That's really interesting. Um, Ahmed, I wanted to come to you because um, one of the things that I found really fascinating about the migrateful classes during the Zoom lockdown era was the emphasis on, say, for example, you might not have some of these complicated ingredients, you might not have been able to get them right now because of shortages or because of difficulties of getting to the shop, but you can use this other thing instead and looking at it together and sharing it together. Did that kind of moment of trying to teach classes in lockdown change things for you? Did you have to think creatively about how to share your dishes? Um, actually, the idea of teaching uh, cookery classes of, on Zoom with my grateful was my idea. Because, you know, my grateful, since it was, was launched, it was face-to-face -face classes. And when the lockdown started, uh, I contacted the Jess and I said, listen, Jess, why we don't go into online classes? He said, like, what do you mean? I said, listen, let me teach an online uh, class to the chef of my grateful and other members of my grateful. And then let's evaluate that. If it works, let me teach the first cookbook class online to public and then we'll evaluate and see how it will go. And that's how it all started to be on Zoom. And thank God, my grateful was able to keep on going through lockdown through this idea. Now back to your question. Uh, always in my, in my classes, and especially on Zoom, I choose recipes that 
you can find them easily everywhere. Uh, in which the ingredients, if you cannot have A, you can have B instead. In which an A and B ingredients will deliver same taste, same uh, flavor. Like you cannot find uh, lemon, you can use lemon juice. You cannot find red vinegar, you can use white vinegar. Uh, and also in Lebanon, we have several uh, recipes where we can use like green peas or large lima beans or kidney beans or butter beans. You can use same dishes with the same recipe just by changing uh, the type of beans that you are using. So that's why during lockdown, we, were, we tried or we had chosen our recipes very carefully so that everyone can find the ingredients so easily. And that's what made our classes more popular and easily to reach every house. Where I told you, like, at one point, my students were from seven different countries, and all of them were able to get at least 90% of the ingredients. Thank you so much. Oh, T wants to come in at this point, I think. Yeah, I think this is so interesting. And so, right, the thing that Ahmed is talking about, I feel like, when I learned to cook from recipes, I didn't do substitutions because deep down I didn't trust myself. And like part of what I had to learn was to trust like my food creativity. And that let me like fly away and do these kinds of substitutions he's talking about. That's really interesting. Fantastic. So I'd like to move on if we may. We've talked a lot about some of the joys and the pleasures and the special things about food. How about focusing for a moment on some of the complexities and the darker side of food, in particular food consumption and food production? Or it would be terrific if you could start us off here. Right. So I suppose there were two things I wanted to say. So one on the kind of personal level, right, we've been talking a lot about um, food and identity, but from what I've um, kind of experienced and also uh, uh, well, explored in my research, um, food of migrants is really a lot about suffering as well. So there is a strong sense of, of loss there. Uh, it's not just about the pleasure of remembering the past, because sometimes the past is not very easy to remember. Um, and so there is a kind of uh, tension that um, is evoked in this kind of reproduction of a life that can never be um, returned to again, of a home that is gone forever. So in, in some senses, this has been um, my, my attempt at the Migrant Supper Club was to convey some of this feeling uh, that people, I think, well, naturally, really, often try to avoid. Um, you don't really want to know about the suffering that people have uh, gone through. This is something that we, you know, there isn't like a restaurant that would offer you. This is a, a dish from um, Samarkand where the Jewish community is basically non-existent. So uh, it is lost forever, but we cook it again for you. Uh, it's exotic for you, but it is really sad for those who are members of this community and have no longer a place to go to. So this is something that I think is, um, is important to remember that we can't just share the good aspects of uh, migrants' food. We need to kind of come to terms also with um, um, the memory that is not always nostalgic. Uh, it is sometimes limited by, you know, politics and the reality of life. 
Um, so, so it's just about not necessarily idealizing too much the notion that food can bring us home. Um, it's not like you know Dorothy's shoes. Um, it's it's a, it's a problem. So, uh, so I leave that uh, in my own memory and my own kitchen. Um, but. But I think that's kind of a general issue with cooking the past and on a completely different level. So if you will look at the more systemic level about um, kind of the, the sufferings caused by food, I mean, it's impossible to ignore uh, the kind of uh, global situation that we are in it today. Um, well, the notion, at least, that uh, food is a limited resource and that we have um, to pay more attention to the ways that we uh, produce it and consume it. Um, so today we talk a lot about it in terms of crisis, but the rhetoric of crisis is really, um, I think, not doing us a good service because uh, our sensitivities to the crisis are gone. We seem to move from one crisis to another, um, and we are unable to really embrace anymore the kind of um, tragic aspects of this situation. It is just too much. But if we even go back you know, to the 1960s, Rachel Carson already wrote about um, the uh, horrible impact of pesticides um, on the environment and the ways in which food production is ruining the planet. So there's been a lot of engagement with these limitations, but not necessarily um, leading to enough change. So it seems to me that the food industry is now moving towards different horizons. I mean, all the farm to uh, table movements are already kind of considered uh, passé because we're moving forward very quickly. But um, but the crisis, you know, is still there. So food is not just about enjoying uh, and uh, taking uh, pleasure in expanding our experiences, but it should also be about thinking uh, on the impact that we do in each and uh, every uh, choice we make. Um, so there is a problem about this kind of abstract caution that you know food is dangerous but when we don't pay attention enough the result can be horrific because if we end up um kind of leading the situation to uh you know a situation of scarcity uh, and limited resources etc has always been um a motive for uh, extreme political violence so it's kind of uh, waiting for us around the corner if we don't pay attention uh, to what is going on and to the ways in which we produce and eat our food that are essentially harmful. Um, so I think that's an aspect that, you know, cookbooks don't really talk about enough. <laughs> mm. Yeah, thank you. That's really interesting. In, in, in relation to your first point about how um, some of these recipes that we're talking about, some of these experiences aren't just about joys, but are also about suffering. There's also that interesting element, isn't there, that sometimes a dish that was, say, a dish that was about poverty, about living with scarcity, about trying to make the best of a few ingredients can become over time, you know, repackaged as hot cuisine or, you know, sort of sold in fancy restaurants. Do you think about that at all in your work or... Yeah, I mean, absolutely. If I think about my, um, even in my, again, my own experience, uh, my my family um, is partially from Riga in Samarkand, and that, I'm sorry, in, uh, in Latvia, uh, and that's a place where you would eat a lot of uh, cabbage, and uh, a lot of 
pickles and because you would need to preserve whatever you have in the summer towards the winter. So you would pickle anything, cucumbers, um, cabbage, any sort of berries uh, would come into preserves. And uh, you would also forage. So uh, mushrooms, herbs, all these things would be you know, just your uh, normal way to get food, especially uh, at times of scarcity. So if we go back to uh, the period around the Second World War, uh, that was the way that people really found nutritious uh, um, food for their family. They just went out to the forests to get it. Um, and nowadays, if you look at the world's uh, best restaurant in many um, classifications, which is Noma in um, Copenhagen in Denmark, um, their menu is essentially based on food that is uh, used to be considered very simple and pretty much uh, poor people's food. So pickles, um, uh, uh, very basic ingredients, uh, game, so stuff that you would go hunting yourself in the forests, um, and things that you would collect by hand in in your environment. Um, so this kind of idea that you would just find the most delicious way to cook whatever you can find around you um, is is the way that people is the way of subsistence. That's the way that people survived. There was no other option. You couldn't import. Uh, sugar and uh, expensive um, meat from other places. You just had to make do. And I think it's really exciting to see that this idea has taken such a um, kind of a successful, inspiring cultural expression um, in uh, the culinary world today. So there is um, much more understanding, I think, of the um, possibilities in limitations, which is something that was and still is the reality of millions of people around the world. Um, so this is just the way we live. Uh, and, and I think there is a lot of beauty in, in expanding this idea and in sharing it uh, as widely as possible and kind of in using the human genius to extract uh, something as delicious as possible from really limited uh, ingredients. Thank you, Orat. T, can I bring you in here? Yeah, I was just thinking about what Or was saying because in LA when I was a food critic, um, a lot of the best food is in these intensely concentrated ethnic enclaves like Koreatown. When you look at history, you discover they're that concentrated because there's a history of racist legislation that didn't let, say, Asians live anywhere. And you're like, these there's so many good noodle shops here and I don't want to think about why. I just want to ignore them. But anyway, I don't know what to do with that. That's just why certain areas have these intense, wonderful concentrations of food. Um, I've been thinking a lot more about, I think I think a lot of approaches to thinking about the ethics of food, uh, think about the effects on the world outside of the food world. Uh, and I find, maybe this is because I do the philosophy of art, I, I, I spend a lot of time worrying about what's being lost in food culture itself. So here's a private worry. Um, that I have a lot. So I'm worried that the current Google search oriented form of recipe searching is undermining some of the diversity of food culture. I figured this out because I remember I had at three different friends' houses in three different states who are unrelated, very similar tasting cassoulet. And I figured out that they all Googled it and took the, took the first one, which is a New York Times recipe. And if you start paying attention, and I mean, I do this too. This is not like I 
Google all the time. Like you'll find like if you recognize if you like discover the taste of like the serious eats perfect soft boiled egg, you'll just start tasting this everywhere because people are Googling. Um, and I I worry that something is going on where we're about to face this massive loss of food culture where the diversity of food methods is being undermined in some way by this, by the recipe and search methodology. And behind that, I'm, okay, last thing I'll say, this is maybe too wild and philosophical. There's this book I've been obsessed with lately called Seeing Like a State by James Scott. And Seeing Like a State, I, I see people nodding. Seeing Like a State is a book about how large-scale states, by which he means capitalisms and large-scale centralized governances, want the world to be in terms that are legible to them. And legibility here is understood as in modalities that are easy to process through large-scale bureaucratic administrations. So easily standardized quantifi uh, quantifiable things are easy for bureaucracies to process and to target and things that aren't like get lost. Uh, and part of the idea of Scott's book is that large scale states have a motivation for reshaping the world in this way. And I'm starting to worry that I'm seeing this with ingredients, that if you're cooking from a recipe, re a recipe is a very, this goes, a recipe is a very steady thing, right? It, it, Recipes work well if the world of ingredients is similar, right? If flour is the same, if tomatoes have the same like density and flavor level, like that makes recipes work. So I'm a bit worried that this, the way we're learning to cook is dragging in this like incentive structure to like homogenize ingredients and methods of cooking. And that this, this live responsiveness that we have to like the weirdness of exactly what we were talking about. Go out, you find something, you taste it, and you're like, oh, this is interesting. What can I do with it? Instead, you're like, no, I need mushrooms to respond exactly this way or else my recipe screws up, right? So I, I'm worried that something is happening that's undermining the liveness of food culture. That, that's really interesting. What about the thought that with that kind of motion, you get the reaction, you always get the kind of counterculture. So, you know, for example, at the moment, we have both mass produced music, but you have the countercultural move, you know, the, the sort of nostalgic style, let's go out and buy our LPs from the market. You know, isn't there a similar thing going on with food culture, a push against uh, mass production, anonymization, Google mm. the recipe? Yeah, there, there is, although... It's just so easy. Like, I'm guilty of this too. Like, look, I, I think, I hope that will happen. I really do. But I also find, and I, I'm hyper aware of this, but I find myself like, it's very easy to be a kind of dilettante these days. Um, like, there are some dishes I repeat, but a lot of the times I'm like, I want to cook something new each night. That would be cool. And so I find something online in one of my cookbooks. I cook it once or twice and I move on. And there's this, I feel like people often say like, oh, the grandparents' generation was better at cooking in a certain way. And I think if you, the people from that generation who cook, who cook like, for, like my relatives who cook these incredible Vietnamese food, part of it is because they repeat 20 or 30 recipes for their whole life. And they have this like, they develop this deep knowledge of how that works. Um, and I, I don't know, like I would like this counterculture to happen, but I feel like 
instead I see a lot more people like me who are Googling a different recipe each night and it's very tempting and easy and it's always delicious. It always comes out right. I get something new each night. That's marvelous, right? Oh, do you want to come in at this point? Yeah, I just wanted to um, suggest really uh, following um, these points that what is really necessary and what people really had in the past was an intuition about cooking. So it's something that is not uh, learned uh, by kind of reading or in theory, but through practice. So this kind of praxis based, if you want. Uh, so to move away from um, the uh, instruction and introduction uh, and to really work on the way that you um, feel. Uh, so this is something that I can characterize the way people cooked before um, kind of cookbooks, uh, which is not so long ago because this entire um, way of cooking that we know today through recipes is perhaps 100 years old. Um, cookbooks before that didn't have uh, precise ingredients or even uh, ingredient lists or quantities. It was more like take some sugar, mix with some um, uh, fat and uh, wrap it around you know, your meat and bake it until it's good. So you need the intuition to make it work. And I think by following the guidelines so closely, we have lost it. And it's a bit like people who navigate only with Google Maps. So in the end, they just don't know their neighborhood anymore because they have no familiarity with the actual space around them. So I think that's something that it would be good to recover. And maybe to do that, we just need to liberate ourselves from the recipes. So, you know, I, I just, I never cook with any recipe book because I find it restricting um, and I am ready to accept failure. So that's something that if you are an intuitive cook, you have to, um, you have to accept. It's like an experiment. Sometimes it doesn't work out, but that's fine. <laughs> Great. Ahmed, do you want to come in and say something about this or the wider theme of the darker side of food? Uh, actually, I have two points at this uh, topic. First, related to mass production, and the second one related to the uh, people who are um, being thankful for having the food. Well, first concerning mass production, mass production, in my opinion, is a sword with two edges. Well, it's really good to have mass production in order, in order to decrease the cost. But on the second hand, it's really a shame because sometimes these uh, products, we cannot, uh, cannot be sold to everyone and therefore it's, doing, uh, it's being uh, destroyed, but we're being uh, ruined. And especially with time, we've been having scarcity with good uh, ingredients in which we are making a production that cannot consume and therefore it's going to be thrown away. Uh, and the other part, some people, uh, especially like restaurants, when they uh, make large amounts of food and this food is not being consumed by the consumers or some consumers purchase more than they need. And on the other hand, a lot of people are facing hunger. That's really a sad point to go through. Uh, and in this point, uh, there's a restaurant in Canada and Montreal that offers sushi. This restaurant, you can order sushi as much as, as you want for by, by paying a, uh, like a single uh, price. But have one condition. 
that if you have one more one piece that you cannot eat in your plate, you're gonna have to pay ten times for what you had eaten. Actually, it's a good way that encourages people to order as much as they can eat, where they cannot order more and then this food being thrown away. Because a lot of people are facing hunger, and that's what unfortunately a new uh, like new uh, a new uh, uh, new new kids who are growing up, they don't know the amount or the importance of having food. Because unfortunately, not everyone are being realistic and have the proper education that people are actually suffering. People are dying. People are not, at some point in the world, are not finding food and not finding even a small crumble of bread. So it's really important to work more on this point and let all the new generations know that some people are really suffering for the simplest and and simplest and smallest part of food. Yeah, absolutely. And in the UK, there was a huge controversy during lockdown about school meals and about what was being uh, given out by different schools and different providers, the big range the inequalities between different types of school exactly and with that my grateful had actually had a project to help uh, these students where every uh, couple of every one week or two weeks one of the chefs of my grateful used to go and cook 150 meals that were distributed to children at school wonderful thank you so at this point, I'm going to bring in some questions for our audience, and I'm also going to leave some opportunity for our panels to ask each other questions if they would like. We've got a couple of really interesting contributions here. So an anonymous poster has asked whether we can talk a little bit more about how food is perceived differently by different cultures, or do we all feel the same way about food? The poster says, it feels like it's always about home and belonging, but there are still so many differences. And I think this ties in nicely to what you were saying at the beginning, T, about how in some cuisines, the emphasis is on, say, aroma, whereas elsewhere it might be about how it feels in the throat or the stomach and so on. So would you like to speak to this question? Um, Yeah, actually, it's funny. I, I'm listening to all these other fairly poetic things about food and identity, and I have to confess, I have almost no, no nostalgic feelings about food. Food gives me almost no memories, and I have almost no associations, except when, I, when I'm sick, I still like Vietnamese pho. And I have a, actually, I have a theory that that makes it sadder for me as a person, but it might make me a more accurate food critic. Because like, you know, I, nostalgic impulses are low, and so I kind of float between the food worlds. I it's I worry a little bit that the the mood of the panel is so pro community, pro our own food that we are losing a little bit of the joys of cosmopolitan food culture. Like I think there's something there's a lot to be lost and a lot of to worry about, but also I think it's really important. I mean, it's really important to me as like a human being that lives in this world and needs joy that I can go to a Persian restaurant, have no connection to it, have no relationship to the community yet, um, have no memory of it, 
and have like fisenjen, which by the way, if you don't know, is like a stew with walnut and pomegranate and just like be electrified by a completely different aesthetic. Um, and I think that's also a really important way of being with food. Fascinating and really important. So one issue that comes up in other arts is cultural appropriation and anxieties around that. Is there a similar kind of issue with food, do you think, T? Yeah, we actually wrote, uh, a friend of mine, Matt Stroll, and I wrote a paper about cultural appropriation, partly because of stuff about food. And one, um, one pessimistic take I've occasionally thought about is that uh, if you ask, for example, a lot of academics, they tend to be very interested in how dangerous cultural appropriation is, how problematic it is. Um, and if you talk to a lot of, I don't know, so I remember talking to a lot of Vietnamese restaurateurs about Ben Mi, and they'd be like, no, everyone should eat this thing, right? Like, it's great. You should like the thing we like. Although, the more I wander through the commercial world of food, the most keenly I feel the appropriation problem. Um, so, so I think the appropriation problem has been really um, bloated in a lot of ways where people think any kind of cultural transmission or borrowing counts as cultural appropriation. But a lot of the original cases were cases like, look, here is a black musical form and you get a white person to do it, even out the beats a little bit and they make 40 times as much money. Mm -hmm. And the most keenly I feel about this stuff is when I go to the, I don't know, hipster South Indian street food place or the hipster like Ben Mee place. And two things have happened. One, a lot of the times I feel like the food has lost some of its uniqueness. Like the hipster Ben Mee Vietnamese sandwich place has been dragged in the direction of Italian hoagies or the, like everything gets dragged in the direction of the same like kind of Euro clean axis that has been the dominant school since, I don't know, Chez Panisse. Um, and that in many cases, restaurants that have actively reduced some of the uniqueness of the cuisine are making a ton more money about it. And there, there I feel intensely the, the worries about appropriation. It's really hard to say that a dish is the property of a group. Like, I don't know how, how would you make that argument, but I, I can feel like the rage when you see the line out the door at the the place that has denuded the food of a lot of what's special about it. Yeah, great. What about just the simple question of say, um, an Italian restaurant that has no Italian chefs or right. you know, a Persian restaurant with no Iranian chefs, you know, right. would that kind of thing bother you? I, th I think you cannot, okay. You cannot be so simplistic as to be essentialist about race. Like, uh, okay. I remember in LA for a while, the best Neapolitan pizza place, the chef was a Lebanese dude. And when you interviewed him, it turned out he had, you know, he grew up making flatbreads, became obsessed with Neapolitan pizza. He went to Naples, he studied for 15 years. He got the approval of like um, a ne Neapolitan master and he went and he opened this thing. And I think, okay, here's a thought about cultural appropriation. So sometimes, You'll see these places, okay, 
I'll just be frank about the race, the races involved here. You'll see a white yoga teacher. The white yoga teacher has gone to India to study with one of the yoga masters, and that yoga master has designated them as a someone who's truly learned the skill. Then this person mm-hmm. comes back, they open a yoga class, and then other white liberals are like, no, you can't do that. You're white. And what they're doing there is actually denying the capacity of a South Asian yoga master to decide who has learned the skill, right? Mm-hmm. And I definitely, I know a dude who got obsessed with Vietnamese pho and he spent like 10 years perfecting it. He learned from the good show shops. He's a like white Nordic dude. He makes pho that feels right. And there are people, there are Vietnamese who can sell out to the market too, right? So it's way more, I mean, there, mm-hmm. there's a thing where you, there's a land grab that you can worry about where you rush in and someone like takes a recipe they barely know about, like throws a bunch of crap on it and then like tries to, tries to go with the cool but but to say that like a cooking culture is like you have to be of the race like i think loses a lot about i mean so the place this came up the most is fuchsia dunlop is this incredible cookbook writer who wrote this amazing sichuan cookbook and she got a lot of shit for cultural appropriation for being a white woman that wrote a sichuan cookbook she's also the first white person to make it through the sichuan cooking academies and i think if you deny her cooking knowledge then you are saying that the Sichuan teachers of the Culinary Academy don't know what they're talking about, about who they pass and give a certification to. Anyway, that's rant over. No, that's fascinating. Thank you so much. And I'll leave this question open for others as well, but I'm going to bring in another question from Sakshi, who asks this. It's very exciting to hear everyone speak on food and its relationship to identity, community, and memory. I was wondering what the speakers think about the relationship between food and feelings. And I wonder if anybody wants to get us started with that. Ahmed? Yeah, actually, uh, during my last cookery classes, at one point when we are, when it's time to make the salad, the Lebanese salad or the tabbouleh, I always ask the student to mix the salad with the hand. And I always tell them it's so important to feel what you are cooking. Uh, I always encourage mixing things with your hand because if you cannot feel or touch what you are cooking, you cannot find the entire pleasure from it. Because you know, we have all our senses. By cooking, we'll be using our smell, our uh, taste, but I want them to use the sensation of touch. When you use the sen- sen- sensation of touch, that means you have covered all your all your sensations, all your feelings are there. So definitely use your touch, use your fingers while cooking in your home, and don't wear gloves if you're cooking for yourself. Touch them, feel what you're cooking, feel the pleasure of cooking with your hands and your fingers. Yeah, there's something so distinctive about cooking in that regard, isn't there, that it engages all our senses. That's something very special. Or, um, Yeah, so I think um, the interesting thing about food is that, <coughs> sorry, it's both personal and collective. So um, <clears throat> the feeling that we have cooking, cooking, 
We're losing you a bit more on the Zoom. So, yeah. Do you want to take a moment? Why don't you? Yeah, I'll go to tea and I'll come back to you. Tea, food and feelings. Um, There's a physicality to food that I think we all know about that doesn't often enter into the main conversation. And that has to do with, I mean, thinking about Ahmed was talking about like, like one of the things I feel that like high restaurant culture does to us is it removes a certain tactile relationship. Like a lot of fancy restaurants, I think, hyperemphasize the visual aspect and they de-emphasize the other aspects. I keep, I remember going to a restaurant um, that made chicken and waffles in the Southern style, but it was fancy and it looked really pretty, but the way they arranged it on the place, it was like actually physically annoying to eat and like everything would slip off of the plate and like fall on you. And then like when you went to the, the soul food restaurant, it would look kind of weird, but like, like the movements were really good. And like the way it like, I don't know, warmed you was really good. Uh, Actually, I should say one interesting thing, the closest I found to someone in the European context talking about the feelings here as much. One, someone told me about a Italian wine culture that's of like uh, naturalish wines that is mostly lost that cares about that. But I was in Ireland, like tasting Irish whiskeys, and the distillers were talking about how much of their grain mix was there for heart feel and stomach feel for the warmingness. I think a lot of the a lot of the foods we think of as comfort foods, the thing that, that this whole body physicality is part of the feelingness of it. And again, gets kind of cut out in like high culinary conversation. Mm. Thank you. Let me come back to Or now on food and feelings. Yeah. So I just wanted briefly to, to say that I think the most important feeling around food is really respect. So in a way, it doesn't really matter if it's a positive or a negative experience or if we have this identity or not. It's really about trying to kind of respect and to put ourselves in a place um, that is not kind of judgmental and exploitative, uh, both in a personal sense and as a kind of society towards food. So this is connecting to what he said about whether we have to be of this ethnicity to actually cook it and enjoy it. So uh, obviously not. I mean, I think that even the idea of this belonging to this ethnicity is essentialist and very few people can claim it. Um, So I really think that what we should take off I hope from this conversation is that anybody's entitled to become part of a food conversation if they want to, and if they can listen uh, and kind of want to share these ideas um, sincerely. I think this is really the most important feeling that we should have around food beyond the taste, which I mean, should taste good, but um, that's, that's a personal matter. Fantastic. Thank you. We've got two minutes left. And so I thought we could just go around and say a little bit about our own favorite dish, perhaps a dish that we like to cook or like to eat or, you know, one that we've tried sometime and we're always trying to recreate. Does anyone want to come in with this, their favorite dish? T. I am currently obsessed with Sichuan Mapa Dofu because I got a line on really good uh, Sichuan peppercorns. Uh, and I mean, actually, I, can, I can give them an advertisement. It's malamarket.com. And if, you, if you're interested, like 
true Sichuan peppercorns have this this feeling that other spices don't. They call it mala. It's like numb tingly. It's like the pins and needles. And it becomes like part of the culinary thing. And like trying to make this dish, which makes your mouth feel like drunk and alive, but also is like incredibly like warming is one of my favorite things. Wonderful. Maybe I'll just jump in. Yeah. So it's uh, Hanukkah. So I suppose latke. So uh, potato ingredient but uh, uh, reproducing grandmother's fav- flavor of latkes is impossible this is a lifelong mission there is nothing that uh, I want more um, than making her a latkes again amazing Ahmed your favorite dish uh, my favorite dish is actually a Palestinian dish called Galayat Bandura it's a dish that is consists of a lot of chili a lot of coriander a lot of garlic and cooked in a very slow fire with the lamb meat and a lot of chopped tomatoes. And it reminds me with one of my friends who passed away uh, two years ago. He used to do it for us approximately at least once every two weeks during winter. So that's now my favorite, especially when it's winter time. Wow, that's fantastic. Thank you all so much. Well, that brings us to a close now. So I want to thank our audience. I want to thank our fantastic panelists for their contribution. Please do join us next week at the forum for a discussion about Moritz Schlick. In the meantime, thanks everybody and goodbye.